From the Sydney Opera House, this is It's a Long Story, a podcast that goes deep into the lives and stories behind some of our biggest ideas. I'm Edwina Throsby. Feminists get a bad rap for being angry. But what would it be like if women were allowed to embrace their anger? American writer Soraya Chamali has been calling for this shift for years. A prolific voice on the role of gender in culture and politics, she has had a long career in media and technology. And, like all of us, she has encountered a lot to be angry about. Her latest book, Rage Becomes Her, is a celebration of female anger. It tackles the highly gendered way our culture regards anger and questions why angry men are strong, but angry women are crazy. Soraya Shamali, welcome to It's a Long Story. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Edwina. So you have a foundational story in your family, which is that of your great-grandmother, Zarife. And her story has been told in one way in your family, but could be interpreted and has been interpreted in another way by you. What happened to her? So initially, several times I heard her story as a princess story, as a a romance story. So maybe I was five, six, and more or less the story went that there was a young woman, she was actually about 14 at the time, and she was very beautiful and... Uh, She went for a walk and was swept off her feet by a young man who rode in on a horse, carried her away, and they got married and had seven children and moved across the world, and here we were. It sounded very romantic. And so I heard that a few times, and at 11, I heard it very differently because I'd had already at 11 some quite jarring and serious experiences of sexual threat, violence. So certainly street harassment, which started at about nine or 10. And also I just had been in a, in a playground where a much older boy said, you know, I could rape you and nobody could help you or do anything. I just remember not really knowing what rape meant, but knowing it was bad. And I'm an older sister and I remember thinking, well, I need to really protect my brother But then I found out what it was. So when I heard this story at around 11, I had a very different response. And so I said out loud, I always say that's the the moment of the good feminist killjoy emergence around 11 years old, you know. But I remember thinking and saying, you know, it, it doesn't sound great to me. I mean, it sounds like she was abducted and serially raped for a long time by a man she didn't know. And then for good measure... He put her on a boat, moved her across the earth, (laughs) and I don't think that that's right. I think he should be punished for that. And the response I got was my first feminist pat on the head, which is, oh, isn't she cute? (laughs) And I think it just really probably made people very uncomfortable to reconcile that because, in fact, I thought my great-grandfather should be locked away, even though he was, at that point, probably around 100, a small, very benevolent man who had, you know, fed his family and been incredibly charitable in in his life and didn't seem threatening. But the disparity between his life and my great-grandmother's life was great. She was really rendered quite mute, and people never really talked about things like trauma. Uh, she didn't really speak at the end of her life much. And he, on the other hand, was beloved and jovial, and these were big differences. And what did that make you think about 
the broader differences between the lives of men and the lives of women? Well, I don't know that I thought consciously at all about it at that age. I just recall that I found it strange that no one else thought this was bad. I I thought, all right, I think what I'm saying is quite sensible, actually, and I'm not exactly sure what's wrong with all the people around me. (laughs) And that's interesting, too, right, because I think my parents gave me enough of a sense of self and of unconditional love that I could actually have the confidence to think, I think I'm right. And this is wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It didn't mean they acknowledged what I said until decades later. But they did finally. They did finally. They did finally. In what sort of way? My mother and her sisters, who were the granddaughters of this woman and remembered her very well, they sort of, I remember once they were discussing it and kind of laughing but saying, you know, that's so true. That's Mm -hmm. so true. But it's hard to admit to that. I mean, this misogyny and this violence are so complicated when they're so intimate. What country did your great-grandparents move from? It wasn't even a country then. It was actually part of the Ottoman Empire, and it was falling apart. It was at that point Transjordan, and then became Jordan. And um, they were in a Christian city called Madaba, um, and that's where they moved from. And then they they sort of traveled uh, out of Uh, there through what is now Israel and down through the Caribbean and ended up in Haiti. How about your parents? You've said that they gave you a loving and stable family. Who, Who were they? So my parents really have had a very long marriage. And what I remember most is never seeing them fight. I just didn't, I didn't have the experience of having parents who fought. There was no, well, first of all, there was no example of argumentation. And there was also no sense of friction. They just actually seemed quite happy. (laughs) And do you think that that was something that they were, like, do you think that they were protecting you and your brother from their conflict? Or do you think that there was genuinely no conflict? No, I think there was conflict. But I also think it's interesting because I've, as an adult, I think that if you've, as a couple, maybe achieved a certain level of intimacy, then your conflict is also intimate. And, And I think that was a lot of it. I also think, though, that they were operating within the parameters of a very traditional, gender-traditional, Catholic uh, understanding of marriage, which is that my dad was the head of the household. He was the wage earner. My mother was the homemaker. She was an exceptionally good homemaker. And that functioned very well for them. Uh, And I think it functioned very well until uh, my mother started getting older and felt, as many women in that situation do, felt taken for granted and um, resented the fact that there was this unequal trade, actually. And, you know, I think my father felt the tremendous burdens of having to be the wage earner always. And that was never something that they in that generation certainly could discuss. Mm. That was just that was just going to happen. It's interesting that um, they both 
were limited in some way by the traditional roles that they were expected to take oh, in their sure. family. I think that happens all the time. Not only are people discussing that and changing it, but many people don't want it and many people have devised alternative ways of living as families and that makes them much happier. I mean, I think so often of boys and men who grew up, they aren't really given the opportunity or the benefit of imagining what they might like or what they might want or what they might be good at. It's just not available to them. And it's, you know, I've written about anger because I think it's quite an interesting filter and framework to look at all of these social constructions of identity and and the politics of those identities. But over and over again, I'm struck by how the provide and protect mentality of idealized masculinity crushes men, mm-hmm. like crushes them. And in the process, sort of as they get crushed, they spread out and crush others. You have two brothers. How were you and them raised? Were you raised in the same way or were you raised differently? We were raised quite traditionally. Uh, For example, I remember we both started piano lessons very young and uh, we both wanted to stop but I was made to continue because that was a skill that a proper young lady should have, whereas he went off and did judo. Oh. And I really wanted to do judo, right? I mean, it was that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, we had uh, wonderful godparents who would give us books. And I think I got the same book on flower arranging for several years in a row. But my mother, I think, interestingly, she was always extremely committed to this idea of fairness. And... She was a young mother during the time of explosive movements of women's liberation. Mm. And I think she really bristled. She she was very conflicted because she was going through the motions of being this traditional good girl and good woman. Um, But she was very aware that things might be different for, for me. You say you had your sort of feminist awakening, if you like, at 11. Um... How did you carry that into high school? Oh, I was very quiet in high school. I I think I spent a good two decades of my life listening. Mm. I'd been going to Catholic schools, and I took it very seriously. I was the kid who would go into church on a Sunday and read the catechism and read the catechism and think about the catechism. And I read lots of books about uh, the history of religion. And and I thought, well, you know, I think I'd like to be a priest. But at no point... Yet, had anyone said I couldn't be a priest. It just never occurred to me that I couldn't be a priest. You hadn't noticed that all of the priests were guys? No, I just hadn't, it just hadn't occurred to me. I mean, there were lots of nuns around and lots of priests around and they seemed to be all working. They were doing things, nun and priest things, you know, and, but very clearly I identified with the priest, which is interesting, right? Because the priest was the talker. And I said to my parents one day, driving to church, you know, I, I think I'd really like to be a priest. And my dad burst out laughing. It just seemed to me that saying that women couldn't be representatives of of the divine or speak publicly or minister to people not only was irrational and and incoherent, but it flew in the face of the fact that all the women I knew were doing that. Because when you're a child, you see women nurturing, taking care of, being in charge of things. And it's not until you move out of the realm of the home and into institutions like school 
that they start disappearing from positions of authority. And it's interesting to me because it's exactly that age that girls are recorded as beginning to feel that they're less capable and intelligent. And so there are all of these studies about, you know, the confidence crisis and the fact that young girls don't think they're as brilliant. And I also don't think that's rocket science. I mean, when you see this shift happen and you're a young child, boy or girl, and you lose the image of women in positions of leadership, I think all of that happens at once. And simultaneously for boys, they're watching, they're having a separate experience of those things happening. But those experiences are also bad, which is why I think this notion of role models for girls is important, but women role models for boys is more important, simply because boys will grow up to have disparate power. And and we need those boys to grow up to be men who are not fearful of admiring women. your feminism. I did. And you founded a feminist journal called The New Press. Mm -hmm. What were you trying to do with that? There was no public presence of women in the school, really. There were some, but it was Georgetown, so it was a Jesuit university. All of the, the institutions, even the student institutions, there were all men. And at that time, I thought, we just need to put a stake in the ground and say women were here. And they had a voice and they had thoughts and that's what that was. So I, I put together a board and we produced a quarterly journal. It took two years of my visiting the dean of students to ask for money mm-hmm. uh, because all these other organizations, of course, were funded by the university as student clubs. And it was very important to me that this be funded with the support of the university. And that was a problem. Why? Because it was a feminist magazine, and who knows what those women will say. Mm. What did you say? We didn't say anything much. We didn't say anything so radical. We were basically, I think, just talking about, you know, gender gaps or maybe we'll interview a woman and hear what she has to think. I mean, this was very, very basic. The other thing that happened at college is that you met your husband. I did. How did you meet? Oh, my gosh. We met. The third day of school. Really? Yeah, we were just, we just met at some freshman thing. And what sort of a man is he? Oh, he's lovely. (laughs) I always joke because actually people do ask, is he okay? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when I really, really went back into writing uh, in my mid-40s, a lot of people we knew were surprised. They didn't know me as this person. They knew me as the mom and the... You know, at one point I had been painting and and maybe the artist person. Uh, but this was really quite surprising, I think, to some people. And I really can't tell you how many people were worried about my husband. <laughs> and he will admit this. He, he He's the first one to say it. But I always joke that he knows what he signed up for. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is not new. Uh, and so, you know, he's... He's a wonderful and egalitarian-minded person, and 
I think one of the things about us, like many couples that have long-term relationships, is we really give each other the freedom to act in very non-traditional ways. I mean, a lot of my qualities would be tagged as masculine qualities and his as feminine qualities. And um, that allows us to do and say things and be more open and true to ourselves. And, you know, even in this uh, immersion of studies of anger, one of the things that I, I was really notable to me was how many women in heterosexual marriages openly report hiding their anger and using instead, consciously or not, sadness and fear mm. to express what's bothering them. And they do it because they are protecting the their spouse from whatever damage they feel might come from what they have to convey or because they fear an angry, angry response back or because they dread a form of retaliation if they're in a, in a difficult marriage. And men in those relationships report saying that they think women's anger is selfish and self-centered. And that does not make for happy marriages. It does not make for an egalitarian relationship where you respect each other's needs and have mutual regard, which is why I think, at least in the United States, 70 percent, 69 point something percent of marriages are initiated by women. Huh. It's a huge percent. Almost twice as many women initiate divorce as men. And men then go on to remarry and women do not. Mm. And I think that's a very good indicator of how traditional marriage can be a, a factory of gender inequality unless you think hard, which is why sort of lesbian relationships tend to be much healthier because – two women actually talk to each other about their roles and responsibilities and time and that just falls into a pattern with a lot of people that is un unhealthy. You've had a variety of different careers, yes, really. Yes, I have. Um, you've worked as a journalist and a writer and an artist. Uh, one of the things that you did was really kind of ride the dot-com boom. Yes, it was in the, in the 90s and, you know, it wasn't tech as we think of it today. It was data tech though. So... I'd worked for the Gannett newspapers uh, in new media and marketing. And at that point, that meant trying to develop something totally new at the time, which were databases, business-to-business -business databases and business-to-consumer databases. And it was really staggering how much data was being collected. Because in those early days, there was really, I mean, it was Wild West, wasn't it? There was no... It was Wild West. And I would argue it's still Wild West. Mm. I mean, people are, I mean, there, there are clearly more privacy regulations. But first of all, I'll, and I'll speak for Americans, uh, people are really willing to give away all this data in return for quote unquote free stuff. Nothing's free. It just isn't, you know. And what happened is companies at that time were using data to improve marketing efficiencies. It's capitalism. That's what you do, you know. And nobody paused to think what happens when you take that data and you put it into a new system and a new medium, the medium of the internet. There was no pause. There was, there's, no, there's no ethical framework. There's no looking into the future and thinking, should we, should we be doing this? And, you know, at this stage... I'm still 
stunned that in colleges and universities, even high schools actually, that there's no ethics component to tech. Mm. If you take computer science, for example, there should be a, a module that talks about the ethics of design and of data. And that just doesn't really exist. I mean, if you become a lawyer or a doctor, some element of your education involves thinking about those things. You don't have to become a philosophy major, but you do have to think about it. And we just don't have that. It's like it's a toy or a game when we all know there's nothing childish about this. Even now, though, and despite your campaigns and other campaigns oh by God, other feminists yes. around the world, I mean, you know, there is an issue with... Oh, with... it's a terrible issue. I remember in 2013 I organised a global campaign with Laura Bates of Everyday Sexism in the UK and Jacqueline Friedman, who was Executive Director of Women Action in the Media. And it was a confrontation of Facebook on its policy of hate speech. They had very clearly listed misogyny as unacceptable, and yet it was very evident that they simply didn't see misogyny in any shape or form. It just, the profusion of images and threats of violence against women on the platform was easy to document. It was, I mean, it was absurd. And so we conducted this campaign by bypassing Facebook, which had not really engaged with us after many months of trying. But we just took images of these pages with names like I Kill Bitches mm. and lots of rape pages next to sponsors. So we would contact a sponsor very publicly online and say, here's your ad, here's your Dove ad next to this picture of a woman being bludgeoned. Is this really what you want to pay for? And um, that, got their t that got Facebook's attention. No but in the wake of that... I remember a specific media interview on NPR where the reviewer, the interviewer basically interviewed me as local mom makes good and then interviewed a business professor who said, you know, these young women don't understand how algorithms work. Oh, come on. No, I laughed so hard because, in fact, it helps to have people underestimate you that way. You know, the reason the campaign was successful, and it was successful, we had we had over 5,000 letters, 60,000 tweets in three days. Facebook contacted us immediately. They had to go into panic gear. I mean, millions of dollars were, were being either lost or threatened. And the assumption was we didn't know what we were doing, when in fact it was because we knew what we were doing that we were able to do it. But that's pretty typical, I think, mm. you know. I mean, you need to understand the underlying technology and you need to understand what the profit motivations are. And the profit motivations are very clear. That's why harassment is so profitable still. done a lot of work in this in this area. Um, you organised the Safety and Free Speech Coalition, mm -hmm. uh, the Women's Media Centre Speech Project um, and other 
projects in this area. What are you doing now still? And what do you think the sort of big issues that remain and continue are? So the the starting point for any of those initiatives was the realization as a person being harassed of so many women experiencing this. I think the moment that it really struck me too was I was in a room with a bunch of women writers and we were joking about the rape threats we got. And I thought this is not right. You know, we're we're joking about it because it's a way of dealing with it and of um, put, put, putting it off, like saying it's not so bad. It's okay. We can manage this. But these were women who continued to work. There was an entire category of women who simply stopped. They stopped mm-hmm. writing or speaking or changed the way they did it or changed where they did it. And literally I thought, silenced. Literally silenced. And I thought this is a very big problem. But it's not perceived as a problem that's a public problem or a problem for democracy. It's really perceived as an extension of women having to keep themselves safe. And that issue of women having to keep themselves safe and the limits it puts on our civic or political participation are still not considered central to democracy. And that's what they are. They have to be central to the proper functioning of democracy because unless women have the ability to participate in those ways, it's kind of laughable to think that we have a really thriving and functioning political um, arena. And so the coalition was really more of a network of women around the world with functional areas of expertise. So we've, we had lawyers who knew what they were talking about and academics who were doing research and activists who were fighting at the nexus of freedom of expression and gender-based violence and technology. And it enabled us to at least uh, convene and to organize when we were trying to work with some of these tech companies. And when you're trying to deal with a behemoth like Facebook, you have to be able to be organized or they can play you against one another. And so that really had a good purpose in terms of just catalyzing some good conversations and then spinning off into other things. And then at the Women's Media Center, we started the speech project for the purposes of trying to raise the visibility of the issue but also help media frame it differently because any issue that a woman deals with online is really very close to the power and control issues that we see in all kinds of gender-based violence. And the tactics that are used represent a microcosm of the large-scale, quote-unquote, public issues we now face, disinformation, um, impersonation, manipulation of these platforms for harm. And you really can see it's the same mechanisms. You've written a book called Rage Becomes Her, which is about anger and female anger and the way that female anger plays into our domestic spaces, our public spaces, our political spaces. I've got to say that of all of the books that I've had to read recently, I found that one probably the most personally confronting because it made me realise that I have taken my ability to repress my anger and, you know, give a calm face to mm-hmm. my colleagues and the people around me as an absolute badge of pride. Mm-hmm. I you, think all of us do. I guess I found it confronting because I realised I didn't know how to express my anger. Well, this is what struck me. No one ever talked to me about my anger or how to express it or what to do with it or 
you know, one of the things I really needed to do with this book was say we have a language we can use. We should develop these words. We should think about how to take this incredibly powerful emotion. And my question was, well, yes, it's horrible to be angry in a certain way, a destructive way, a violent way, an explosive way. But that's not the only way to be angry. We just never talk about all the other ways, the joyful ways, the creative ways, the artistic ways, the political ways. That's what I think we need to talk about. I guess there's quite a close relationship between anger and a recognition of injustice. Yes. And if you don't have a recognition of injustice, then how can you work to fix it? Yes. And I mean, even if you're a little child, if you see an injustice, you recognize it. And what is the first feeling you have? You might have sadness. But you probably feel indignation Mm. or anger of some way. We give it many names, you know. But but there is this feeling in your body that there's something wrong. It's a signal that there is something wrong that should be righted. And even children dividing up a, a cake, they have an awareness, most of them, that the cake should be divided up in a certain way. And when it's not, they will enforce the division. You know, your slice of cake is way too big. Mm -hmm. You know, cut that in half. Even if you're six or seven, that's happening, you know. There's a lot of rhetoric around anger and specifically around anger management. You know, Mm -hmm. we we turn the other cheek. We catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. You forgive and forget. All of these kinds of things. Do you think that the framing of anger as destructive and negative is so culturally embedded that showing anger, particularly while female, is never really going to be recognised as positive? Well, it is recognised as positive in many situations for men. So we know it can be recognised. We know that from studies that show, for example, that when male executives get angry, it might make people uncomfortable. But in fact, it makes those men more influential. And it's a function of gender and or race and ethnicity that women do not have that power accrue to them. That's a cultural judgment. That's the social construction of how we respond to anger. A woman in the same situation, either as a CEO or a lawyer, is actively punished for displaying exactly the same behaviors as a man. And that's just a bias. And it's up to us whether we want to cultivate that bias or not as a society. So yes, I think it is entirely possible to do If there's a will, I'm not convinced that will is even remotely close to being a reality. It probably has a lot to do with the way we bring up our sons and daughters as well. Oh, it has everything, everything to do with it. You are the mother of three daughters yourself. I am. How did you raise them to recognise and manage their anger. Was that something that you were thinking about when they were little or was that something that you've been thinking about more recently because they're pretty much grown up now? I was thinking about it when they were little. Um, It's difficult. Particularly each child's very different. Your children are always different if you... and. um, But I was very aware of how easy it is to slip into traditional patterns of behavior. I was more aware of it because, in fact, my my parents and my husband's parents were quite traditional, and I considered myself a buffer in that way. And so I remember at one point, I think my mother-in-law said to one of my daughters, now be a good girl and do what I'm telling you to do. And I stepped back and and I said, actually, you know, 
I don't want her to conflate being a good person with obeying. You you need to be able to intervene and say, you know, our language really does matter, and I'm not comfortable with that language. Um, it, I, you know, we could say to her, can you please pick up your toys? How about tantrums? You know, there is something glorious about oh a child God. having a tantrum, but it can be really inconvenient. It's when... so inconvenient, and the really inconvenient part, well, I mean, I had three children at the age of three, and physically, that's just overwhelming. You just cannot afford a tantrum. You can't, like, you physically cannot afford a tantrum. And especially one of those back arching, stiff, mm-hmm. it's such a good technique. I mean, it's just amazing that as adults, we don't continue doing that. <laughs> you know, I wish we could. I wish we could too. I'm like, oh, I wonder if I could do that back arching, stiff thing where nobody can move me. But um, it's hard, right? It just, but but I also feel, and this this was interesting, I think a lot of people are so embarrassed, so embarrassed by what's happening in public, which I totally understand, that they will do anything to stop the tantrum. When your kids express anger, mm-hmm. you want to – I used to want to stop it. Yes, that's right. But having read your book and as the mother of a daughter, I now think how do I allow her yes. to be angry in a way that also means that we can still get to school on time? Right. And I think that's really valid. You know, I feel as a woman who was a teenage girl, as a mother of teenage girls, knowing the situation that adolescent girls encounter, I feel it's so important to to just let them speak without judgment. Let them say what they have to say, even if they say it in a horrible way to you as a parent. You know, if there's something happening and it's important to allow the child to have a place to express that, that that she can have those feelings and in expressing it, develop an understanding herself of what those are. Sometimes it's just a matter of listening. You just need to listen. Other times it's a matter of guidance or setting limits because, in fact, children want you to set limits. They don't explicitly want you to, but I think it's the push and pull of wanting to know they can go a little further, but that you have their back. Mm. Also in writing the book, I realized was that so many of the stereotypes around girls and women's emotionality and those hormones as a cause, and I mean, hormones clearly affect people, but the hormones as the cause and the quote-unquote craziness of erratic behavior cluster around life transition times for women, adolescents and menopause especially. And in fact, adolescents and menopause bring with them huge change for women and girls, change to our bodies, change to our relationships with the people around us, changes to our sense of self and identity. That's hard and we should acknowledge. And it's enraging. I mean, come on, I am... I'm 52. I don't think I've ever had more than 12 years in the same body. Hmm. Every 12 years or so, my body has undergone a shift. And then I get used to that body and it's gone, (laughs) right? Like I had 12 years and then I became an adolescent and then I was in my 20s and then I had three children and then I was after having children. And I'm just catching up all the time. And that's infuriating. (laughs) So what role... Does women's anger now play in the public sphere? What's the potential there? Well, I mean, I think we see it every single day. We see it in every political 
movement. And very often they're called social movements because women are doing them, you know. Um, but it doesn't matter what you look at. Climate change, environmental issues, food toxicity, uh, water rights, um, the forefront of virtually any democratic anti-authoritarian movement in the world, you see women, that's all anger, you know. It, it's all other things too. It's compassion and fear and the drive to be economically secure, all of those things. But women are always there. They're just right there, front and center. And we tend to look at those women and try and recategorize the movement. You know, they're mothers first and foremost, so it can mm. really wink, wink, be political. We just have to uh, appease their mothering instincts and then they'll go away again. They're fighting for other people. They're fighting for other people and that's acceptable. If they're fighting for other people, then we're much cooler about it. Well, I hope we can continue to fight oh, for other people yes. and for ourselves. And for ourselves. Soraya, it's been such a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for coming on oh, the show. Thank you so much for having me today. You can watch the video of Soraya's event at All About Women on the Sydney Opera House YouTube channel or find the link in our show notes. This podcast is produced out of the Sydney Opera House Talks and Ideas program and made by the It's a Long Story podcast team. Fleur Mitchell, Nerida Ross, Susie Anderson, Josh Milch, Joshua Craig, John Gardner, Riley Edwards, Ellen O'Brien and Rachel Power. Our theme music is composed by Rainbow Chan. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time.